And a one and a two and a one, two, three, four. Welcome to House of Strauss. Welcome to Industry Talk. I'm talking very quickly for no reason whatsoever other than to say hello to Ryan Glassbeagle, the New York Post. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm wondering if um, our docket should have been what we selected or what a random listener selected. That is what I'm puzzling over currently, Ryan. I mean, uh, let's see. I think I just sent it to you. This guy thinks that we should yeah. discuss. Uh, he says, you need to talk about Stephen A. on a helicopter with Jerry. I'm assuming that is uh, that is Dallas Cowboys, Jerry. Um, why all the new theatrics? After today. Okay. Um, Dave Portnoy versus conservative media and student loans with two question marks. Um, it's not Portnoy versus conservative media. It's Portnoy versus Whitlock. And those are different. But yeah. But there's a little bit of Portnoy versus Cernovich. There, there's some interesting yeah. things. There's some interesting things going on there. I might even have to write an article about that one. The student loans. I don't know. I mean, it, look, I'm no legal expert. It seems as though even though that was the topic du jour, um, a court will probably throw that out. So we might be discussing something that doesn't even happen. I mean, my main take on the student loans thing was just that everybody I follow on Twitter was saying the same thing, which is to attack anybody who has an issue with student loan forgiveness as being a hypocrite or being mean. And I just kept looking at that and thinking, yeah, I just wish I had more people actually talking about the influence on society. Um, you know, here's why it won't have negative downstream effects. Blah, well, blah, 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 blah. I don't, I can't figure out how they're going to pay for it. That hasn't been like explained yet. Like it just mm. seems like over honestly, since the bailouts and the global financial crisis, which is now like 13, 14 years ago, mm. it just seems like the government just like makes up money and, yeah. um, like all of a sudden they just come up with the money for that, for COVID, for, um, you know, the American healthcare act, uh, affordable healthcare act. Like just, I don't know. It, it, no, no one's like explaining how they're like paying for all of these like massive expenditures. No. And just, if you look at the course of human history, when governments just start to like make up money, that's when, um, you know, empires collapse. Yeah. Eh, but I think everybody at this point, um, there are only so many people with optimism. So maybe we all raid the pantry. I don't know. I'm not sure that's the best of topics. There's also the subject I wrote about, if we do want to go back in time, to the global financial collapse back in those days of the blog wars. The blog wars between the Let's Gen start with bloggers. that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into that. That seems like the thing to get into. I figure you probably have some takes. For those who do not know, on House of Strauss, I wrote an article on the famous blow-up, the explosion between Buzz Bissinger and Will Leach, uh, Deadspin founder Will Leach, and I mentioned in the article, I feel as though people have almost forgotten that part, um, on Costas Now. And it wasn't like Costas Now was watched by 20 million people, but for whatever reason, this was a big moment of my youth. And people recognize that. It had to be one of the first, like, you know, sports media viral moments, at least... Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, Jim Rome and, um, Chris Everett was probably the first, but, um, yeah. the, I'm not, maybe not the first, but at least the first of the modern well, era, it, but it, 
it it um I don't even know what word I'm looking for. Actualized it. It it made it real because this fight had been happening digitally for a while and we didn't have social media so they weren't duking it out and going back and forth they were all complaining about one another to their individual audiences i'm talking about the sports writers and the gen x and elder millennial bloggers and this was the first time you saw them in the same place and it was explosive and bissinger was just incandescently angry so angry um, and Leach, not so much. I thought actually, I, I should have mentioned, I thought Leach did pretty well by the situation, but it, it, it was just that conflict. It was that conflict almost performed for everybody. So it was quite a talker in media at that time. So the article was looking back at that conflict and ultimately there's no tidy conclusion. I think my, my conclusion, I like thinking about generations. I don't view it from the perspective of one generation is bad and the other is good. I kind of look at it from the perspective of if the younger generation is bad, then it must reflect the flaws of the older generation. That's kind of how it has to go, if that's what you believe. So my thesis was that a lot of this was born out of, yes, technology. Yes, you could get, you know, have your own blog and make it whatever you wanted. And it opened up new forms of communicating. But a lot of what we were reading, I think, was an emotional response to the glut of boomers in the major sports writing jobs who are never going to leave and that had already set in. And Will Leach already knew that and Bill Simmons already knew that. And that was making uh, some of their commentary, I think, a little well, more yeah, certain. And then, you know, it, they pulled the ladder up and just, you know, the there was the, these newspapers were fighting their own battles as well. Um, yeah. You know, like. Bill Simmons was never going to get up and like rise up in the Boston Globe. Uh, he was at Boston the Herald, Herald, but like he wanted to be at the Globe because yeah. the Globe had this, you know, legendary sports section with a lineage of like Peter Gammons, Bob yeah. Ryan, Jackie yeah. McMullen, Bill, Will McDonough, on and on. This um, might be too reductive, but Bill Simmons wanted to be Bob Ryan and Will Leach wanted to be Roger Ebert. And as great as both those guys were, um, and even if those guys, you could say, were the best at what they did in their respective industries, nobody was ever going to be allowed to be that. Yeah, um, it just it wasn't going to happen with the way that like the the we can go over like all the ways newspapers were mismanaged or whatever. But once like the revenue stream of the classified section um, dried up because of Craigslist, it just became, you know, a very fast circling of the drain and the opportunity for um, anybody to like rise up in those spaces was just gone immediately because nobody was ever going to leave, as you said. Yeah. And I think it informed the angsty tone of these blogs. And I loved a lot of them. Um, And the other thing I was pointing out is that a lot of the critiques made by the boomers, about these blogs, I think turned out to be fairly, if not prophetic, they just, they, they identified a problem because some of what Bissinger was criticizing about Deadspin of that time did metastasize after Leach left it. I, um, I think, I think you give Leach a little bit too much credit for not having it fester in the culture of the mm. site at the time. Um, well, he crushed Leach by all means. I've already interviewed I'm on- him. I'm not crushing him. Um, 
you know, it wasn't necessarily in his writing, but, you know, the um, AJ Delario was writing there under Leach. He, um, he looked over the shoulder of like Stuart Scott and read his private texts and printed mm. them. Um, you know, he did stuff like that. Um, they, the comment section, which Bissinger, um, re- like, which he mentioned in the HBO thing, but he called Drew McGarry Big Daddy Drew Balls. Um, <laughs> like, you know, that, that was, that was, um, a kind of sewer in and of itself. And I think that, like, now we've kind of grown accustomed to the fact that all comment sections are sewers, but you have to, like, remember that Deadspin's comment section was a curated sewer. Like, you, it was, like, run on, like, a, quote unquote meritocratic star system and so like people like drew mcgarry and like matt offered and arkansas fred and stuff by the way i still follow arkansas fred on twitter he's a good follow but like Mm. you know there was like a very like snarky group of in commenters that i'm sure bissinger not totally incorrectly thought were inextricable from the site okay so this is an interesting point and i will do a little bit of a name drop slash a plug because it was discussed on where did you have the yellow star (laughs) i don't even know what that means i'm not sure the reference they were allowed like they if you had a yellow star you were like allowed to comment you had to be Ah. vetted until your comments were like able to be seen. I've never been a commenter. So I, I did not have a yellow star, but I did discuss this with one Bob Costas on my podcast. Um, and I came to the conclusion extemporaneously, an individual comment is not your fault. That is not your fault. Somebody leaves but it, a but crazy I, as comment. I'm saying it kind of was. But, but what I'm saying is comments, comments. I do think you have something to do with the comments, plural. Right. Yes. An individual crazy one. No, I mean, anybody can do that, but you can preside over a certain culture and you teach them how to be. And this is an angle I didn't really get to in my look back at what happened. And I like what I wrote, but it was an angle that I I didn't include and perhaps should have, which is maybe that comment section was proto Twitter where we could see journalists trying to respond to this collective id in this way and getting increasingly unethical. Yes, I'm a dork who believes in ethics. Um, unethical in pursuit Bobby of that particular Bigwheel, another Another deadspin commenter, sorry. Which guy? Oh, Bobby, Bobby Bigwheel. Bigwheel. I just remember, yeah, I think he, he's one of those people who got mad at me on Twitter. You know, I started saying the things that people like that don't like. I mean, look, they figured everything out. They know a lot about politics. They're really smart about politics, uh, that crew. And, you know, I, I guess I just disappointed them. So, um, yeah, snarky. Why am I being so snarky? I'm just being bitchy, right? I don't know what's going <laughs> on. Anyway, um, yes. Uh, yeah. So I think that was, you identified it, Ryan. I think that that was something there. I probably should have probably should have hit on that in the article. You can make it a series. I think people would read about this for years. Hmm. Maybe possibly potentially. Yeah. Basically the boomers were wrong. The Gen Xers were wrong. Everybody's wrong. And here's something I might not have given enough credit to though. Do you think a lot of good came out of it? <laughs> I I should have credited the big lead. I got I, I maybe I shouldn't be revealing this because he wouldn't want me to. But Jason McIntyre did email me, and I I did say to him I I, I should have mentioned the big lead. 
<laughs> I mean, my life's work, and I mean, half my career was spent there. So, um, but no, I. The thing about um, you know, there there was like a, I I, I my memory on this is like hazy, and I don't yeah. know if there's any way to verify it. But I sent you privately. I sent you this like L.A. Times story from like around the same time about like how the bloggers were trying to professionalize and McIntyre talked in there about like trying to have, you know, like professional relationships with ESPN and that matter. And like Deadspin for as like Outkick still does now, Deadspin saw ESPN as like kind of the mortal enemy and Leech went after McIntyre. I don't know whether it was in Twitter or in like another story or what. And it's like, no, that's terrible. Like you can't do that or whatever. I don't, I really don't remember exactly what I mean, that's the said, thing. But the, the, that's the thing about this particular subject is that you said I could write a series. I could, for whatever reason, this topic, a topic almost nobody talks about anymore has layers beyond layers beyond layers. So when you sent that to me, I thought, I just wrote 4,000 words. I can't possibly incorporate all the interesting stuff in here and everything else that's being (laughs) said. But however we got to where we are is a very rich story, and I don't think that there's been too much about it. Ryan Holiday wrote a fascinating book on the fall of the Gawker Empire. I think it's called Conspiracy. Um, and that's, that's something that's an artifact of the era. Uh, I think, so you've been publicly shamed by, by Ronson would be another one, but for all the media loves talking about the media, they're so present focused and addicted to Twitter that few people are actually sitting down and cranking out, um, <laughs> long explanations and expositories about a very recent awful history. announcing did like a very 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 long oral history of AOL fan house that oh, was yeah. like the time like AOL fan house was when it looked like blogging could be like a lucrative career because they were the first um place to really like overpay the internet cool people and so like the amount of people who went through there and actually still have careers like Clay Travis wrote for them. And uh, probably, Sam Amick, I think what uh, Sam Amick, I think. Was yeah, I think he did too. Michael David Smith, the managing editor of pro football talk. I believe he wrote there. Um, a lot of people did. Um, so like, but like, you know, there would like be later ones of those like sports on earth and, vocative and stuff like that but um the that was when it like looked like these people you you chain yourself to a laptop for a few years and all of a sudden you're going to be making really good money but it, it didn't totally work like that um for whatever i don't understand how the algorithm works because i just looked up fan house and sam amick and it twitter uh, I went to a June seventeenth, two thousand ten tweet uh, about some Kings trade that he, that Sam's tweeting about, and under it, Twitter says more tweets, and it's the White House going after Marjorie Taylor Greene about being a hypocrite for taking PPP loans. So I have no I, idea. I saw I saw a thread today about how 
the internet has just gotten broken over the last three or four years. And I found mm. myself nodding to like mm. a lot of it. It's just, Whoa. you know, search results aren't as good anymore. Most of it said something like 75% of like the links that used to exist are dead. Um, just through so many redesigns or like not paying server bills or places going out of business. Like it just, you know, you, you think that, the internet is going to last forever. And to some extent, if you like know how to handle the Wayback machine, you can make it mostly work forever. But it, it certainly is not working as well as I would say it did in like, well, I don't know, 2015. Was the old internet better, I think, is a good question. Um, and when we're, we're talking about late aughts. That's what we're talking about. Was it better? I mean, I remember being way more excited when I would get on the internet than I am today. And, Ooh, you know, some cool is going to be there. Something funny is going to be there. It, it's just very different. There's Twitter and Twitter's its own animal, but it really, well, it's did- also a different point in our lives. We didn't have real responsibility. Um, mm. And the internet was our diversion instead of like, you know, feeling like, Oh, I gotta just be chained to it all the time or I'm yeah. going to miss something. And my like imaginary competitors are going to be ahead of me. Mm, yeah. I just remember reading Deadspin in the Berkeley engineering library while I was supposed to be working there. And that's, that's how I was experiencing it. Um, yeah. You, you'd refresh it. Like, you know, a couple times an hour hoping that yeah. we posted something new and wondering what it was because there wasn't Twitter. There was, there was Facebook, but it was like just um, constrained to college people. And it wasn't the same. It wasn't just. So here's, a, with ads or... here's another question because um, somebody liked this part especially when i said i actually came away with admiration for bissinger because there's an authenticity and a passion and a power to his rageful performance that i do not see from the younger generations who among a millennial or zoomer could deliver i know we say that wasn't what he should have done yelling at leech being rude like that but deliver a performance of that level of power and authenticity is there anybody in our age group who who you think could do it in sports media? Well, you still got to get another like 10 or 15 years under our belt. And he wrote this like brilliant bestseller in Friday Night Lights. Um, and then when he was on Twitter, it was like not a good experience. Um, it was, you know, watching when, when you, when you were watching him in like real time, it was um, he didn't, you know, give off the um, impression that he was, you know, a healthy, well-adjusted no, person. No, it's, God, uh, this is a whole other topic. I talked about it with Rob Anderson. What is it about the magic of Twitter that makes people just voluntarily give up their status and reveal themselves to be something lesser in the public eye than they are? I mean, I think he's an example. I brought up Richard Dawkins. David Simon is another one where you've got this mystique as the guy who wrote The Wire. And then you you follow him on Twitter and you go, this guy is deranged. And why be deranged? You know, for what? There's no money in it. Right. I, it, um, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that for, for why. I just you, you we've identified the what, though. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to rack my brain. You know, Stephen A., 
can deliver those types of monologues. He's not a millennial. He's not a boomer either. He's, you know, in that Gen X era in between. He can deliver passionate monologues if he really wanted to, like, you know, you see him do it to, like, Kyrie Irving or whatever. He doesn't do it to the blog. Brings those. I don't, I don't, I can't like thinking of Stephen A as a Gen X. I love thinking of Stephen A as a Gen X figure. I feel like the only reason, the only reason we haven't is is pure racism, I, I believe, and I think that we should start thinking of him in the way we think of a Chuck Klosterman. You know, I I, I like that, and that will be a natural segue uh, to what's up. They've got like boats, like they got helicopters. What's going on? Expert on first take, Ryan Glass Eagle. Uh, yeah, I mean the. They they they're prop actors on first take, and that's why it's successful because it's not just them sitting in the same studio every day. They incorporate new elements. They take the show on the road. Uh, you know, PTI was like they they used to dress up. You know, when Tony would be like the genie or whatever. Um, or like they do like role player, the heads on sticks. And so they don't do that as much anymore. But um, with, with with first take, like Stephen A is a showman. Um, yeah. He had like, you can psychoanalyze him all you want, but he needs to be the center of attention. And he took the month of July basically all off and was probably sitting there chomping at the bit, wishing he could talk about whatever NBA free agency rumors or whatever were going on while he was recuperating from shoulder surgery and probably came up with the idea, oh man, we should go to Dallas where everybody knows I hate the Cowboys and like Mm. I should fly into first take with Jerry Jones on a helicopter. You know, the boat thing, that was actually like an underwhelming prop, like because I was told they were going to be on a yacht and then they described it as a yacht, but it was more like a pontoon boat. And I would have thought they could have gotten a better boat for his first show back. Oh, God, I, I just love that show. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's just the best. Like, it's theatrical. When, He's uh, incredible. When when you see like Mad Dog just saying like real sports fans don't care about the UFC. He's such a populist hero. Um, <laughs> he, like, he, he always is the person who's speaking for the like normal audience okay. of that show that, that which doesn't intro- care about UFC. Like UFC that, has its audience and I'm not. Okay. I, I want to jump in there because that's a fascinating observation. I'm just thinking about how Joe Rogan, I don't think Joe Rogan talks about other sports ever or expresses any interest in other sports uh, other than UFC. Uh, my best friend I grew up with is a huge UFC fan. And doesn't watch other sports. It, it's almost like a, there's a horseshoe thing happening where the only people who don't watch regular sports are the most like hyper masculine and the people who tend to watch the Winter Olympics. Uh, there's something very odd happening right there where ultimate dudes dude who loves UFC doesn't love doesn't love sports. Or am I just trying to create a stereotype on the fly that doesn't even exist? 
I don't know. They it, it does seem to be separate worlds. And this is one of those things where Twitter is like a funhouse mirror because on the nights of UFC fights, it is just like, first of all, they're on so late. Like they're on at like 10 to midnight Eastern time where like it really gets into it. And so they they basically have the floor to themselves is maybe like there's some like West coast, regular season NBA or regular season MLB to compete with, but it's really kind of them. And all of a sudden it's Saturday night and 80% of the people you follow who are tweeting at the time are talking about UFC. And so, but it just, I, for whatever reason, I don't think there is like a big overlap between the, typical UFC fan versus the people like Russo who are super into like NFL, NBA, MLB. But what I would say is like Russo is super into the golf and tennis and those have their own fans too. So like he's talking about how the normal sports fan doesn't care about UFC and then he'll spend like two hours talking about the Australian Open on his radio show and so Mm. it's like he's kind of like got these blind spots where if he's super into something he's going to hammer it anyway and but then he's dismissive of the UFC because he doesn't care yeah well speaking of tennis is there a new spin on the soul Djokovic I feel I feel as though there's something odd to this story where he's going to miss the U.S. Open because he doesn't want to get the vaccine. And what's weird about the story at this point, it's just been around a while um, that these restrictions remain. They feel like uh, they they feel like residue from another era. Um, Hopefully, hopefully. I don't know if it's like the government being slow or if they just like want to wait a little while longer because they didn't want to give him this win. Like, but, um, it it almost feels like they haven't changed this policy just to spite him for just the reasons of like clinging to the time where they're they're pot committed. They're hoping, they're, they're hoping some new science comes down the pike and, and validates them. but we we were told and we believe for a time that if you got the vaccine you wouldn't get covid and you wouldn't spread covid and that turned out to be just demonstrably false and so i don't think if you're unvaccinated that you pose any more risk to vulnerable citizens than um anybody else does and so uh it's oh, just, okay you know and, the, C- and- the cdc said don't treat vaccinated and unvaccinated people differently. Like they came out and said that, and yet we still aren't letting unvaccinated people cross our well, border. Because there's something it. socially, I think there's something strange socially happening because I think we've, we've had these discussions when it comes to all these rules and we're in agreement and that all makes sense. But the, the curious thing about it, Ryan, is that I think a lot of other people in sports media also agree with us, but nobody wants to be the person sticking up for Djokovic. Um, and that's what's interesting here, right? Because they're both, yeah, it's, it's like only like Clay Travis and Sage Steele. It's and like, you, yeah, and you don't want to be associated with them. And somehow this has all become politicized. You can't just look at this issue and regardless of where you come down on gun control or climate change or whatever, have your own assessment. Um, there is this social fear 
of being lumped in with the with the bad people. The people are viewed as the out group by your in group. And I think that right now is what's preventing a critical mass of sports writers and tennis writers from going, what the fuck? Like, it's time to move on. At least that's my interpretation. I, I, yeah, but the tennis, right? It's, it's not like the U.S. Open or the tennis. It's the government. It's the federal government that has these laws for everybody. Like, yeah, there's I think, lots of I think with enough me- but they But they respond to media pressure. And if there's enough media pressure from... John McEnroe has been, like, banging on about it. And he's, like, not known as a right-wing firebrand or anything. And he just keeps saying how stupid it is. But, um, like, obviously he's somewhat self-interested because he's broadcasting that tournament yeah. and it would be a lot more interesting if Djokovic, the favorite it was, was playing in it. But I will say he has made like an enormous self-sacrifice out of this principled stand. You could say, why doesn't he just get the shot? Like none of these healthy tennis players have suffered any. Yeah. He'd probably be like, he'd probably be fine. He'd probably be fine. Seen one pro athlete have an adverse reaction to the vaccine. I know that we've read about that it's like can happen to some people, but in the same way we haven't seen like a healthy young fit athlete die or yeah. come close to death from COVID. We also haven't seen that happen if they take the vaccine. So I can see the people who are like, why don't you just take it? But at least like it's an individual sport and he really is affecting his own legacy. He's at the end of his prime, or at least what should be the end of his prime before, you know, athletes like Tom Brady started extending what we thought was possible. But, you know, Nadal has 22 majors. Djokovic is 21. He sat out the Australian Open, which Nadal won. So they could very well be flipped 22 and 21 if Djokovic had played in it. And he's sitting out the U.S. Open where he would have been the favorite to win. So, you know, in in the terms of like his legacy and having the most majors of all time, he's really making a principled stand here. I think that's a great point. And it's one he's not given credit for. And people just feel different ways about it. I, I was listening to Waz on, on Bill Simmons podcast talking about the Brooklyn Nets situation and how uh, Kevin Durant should be uh, ripping into Kyrie Irving. And that, that was Waz's perspective. And I understand where he's coming from. And Waz was saying, if he took the shot, he'd be fine. He would be fine. And that, that is, I think, also true, that, that he would be fine if Kyrie took the shot. But I do believe in bodily autonomy. I do believe that um, unless it is demonstrated that clearly you need to do this for the health of everybody else, if it's not demonstrated, then I don't think you should be forced to do it. And so even if I know that Kyrie does things just to be difficult, and if it wasn't this, it'd be something else, I can't really go there to where Waz is on that issue um, and and uh, blame Kyrie for not being able to play. I just I, I just can't do it. I can't get there. And What um, Stephen A. would say is he should – well, he has said is he should do it for – KD, who he joined up with, and you know, is, we don't know. Isn't that like a crazy? It's like a crazy scenario, though, that you need to take this medicine that you don't need in order to. I mean, I get it, though. I understand it, and a lot of people in the NBA feel that way. A lot of people in the NBA feel, yeah, you don't want the shot. Well, neither did Andrew Wiggins. He didn't want it either. We all had to get. We all had to get it. So you have to get it. 
um, suck it up and do it. You'll be fine. I totally understand that perspective, but I, I don't want to bail out the people who make rules that don't make sense. I think that it's, it's the primary, that's yeah. the primary issue. And so, um, this residue probably needs to go away already. And not just because it's having a negative impact on tennis, but I, I do think, I know what, what is saying. it that the media won't um, flip on this? You know, we've seen some people like Nate Silver um, has, but for whatever reason, the like New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, MSNBC, CNN, Vox. Oh, like, I think that they did. I think they did flip in many ways. Uh, Le- is it Leonhardt, the guy who covered this for the New York Times? Um, yeah. But he's one. He he's one person. Like it's not really the outlet. Well, he took a tremendous amount of shit to make that shift in public, and I think he gave other people permission to also make that shift. Um, I think so. I think that there are a few people who change it because this is how it works, right? Um, There are people outside of liberalism and media liberalism who can say certain things, but they're just not going to have the kind of impact on some of the power structures that people inside the tent can have. And so uh, Leonhardt is going to be far more influential. Nate Silver to a degree. I think Bill Maher um, on, on his show, even though if you read Twitter, if you watch Bill Maher, you're a right winger in real life. Uh, real time with Bill Maher is watched by liberal boomers. Um, and so I think people uh, making a shift in those places allowed for the loosening of a lot of restrictions. Um, and uh, to what you were asking, why won't they, uh, for the for those who won't talk about the Djokovic thing, that issue isn't important enough, I guess, for uh, people like Leonhardt and uh, Bill Maher to really focus on. And then for everybody else, you just don't want to be lumped in with Clay Travis and Sage Steele and these outgroup figures. So nobody really takes it up. So it's just kind of trundling along um, with this, uh, without Which, a lot of pressure. By the way, I wasn't denigrating them. I'm just saying like, they're the only people who are vocal about this. Yeah. The, well, um, we, what we're saying right there is just that they are viewed as, like they, their name symbolizes something bad to the in group, you know. Like that's that's really what we're saying. Yeah. Um, all right. Do you want to talk about LeBron and Westbrook? I feel like you have a theory that he's up to something and he's being Machiavellian. And I want I'm to. Gonna, I'm going to give Neely credit, um, who's a listener and high school classmate of mine. Um, mm-hmm. He pointed out that LeBron um, said similar things about Kyle Kuzma and Taylor Horton Tucker right before the Lakers shipped them out. And what are those? And what are those things? I don't know what he said, Neil. Do you want to call in and remember? (laughs) I didn't look him up, but um, so so basically, he he has basically said they're going to have great years for us, and then they were gone. Um, ah, so, so he's a trade value, a trade value fluffer is the idea. I don't know that it's like a trade value fluffer. I think that it's more that he's trying to act like he's not the one like pulling the strings as the GM, even though like my theory is that there's some, I, I think that there is a trade in place involving Kyrie and Westbrook. Um, mm. I don't know if there's a third team or not. I 
guessing Durant probably doesn't have his heart set on reuniting with Westbrook, but um like so I don't know who the third team would be. Maybe like Charlotte, maybe Oklahoma City needs um some box office this year with Holmgren going down, but um and like, you know, that like if you think about it, Westbrook would be good a good kind of one year thing for them at, you know, nostalgia there. It, it helps them like kind of secretly tank because now they just want to do mm. what they did and pair like a second star with Holmgren, like the Sixers try to do with Simmons and Embiid. Um, but like, I, I think that they're, the um, Peter Vesey made a great point on Twitter. Like, so Durant meets with Nets brass in LA where Kyrie lives, but Kyrie isn't part of the meeting. Yeah. Why is that? Ah, well, little Windhorst right there. A little Windhorst action with the why, why is that? And uh, so, you, you know, the Lakers trade for Patrick Beverly, who everybody knows is Westbrook's arch enemy. Um, Wob last night, he tweeted um, – he, he tweeted, like, right away, he's like, oh, my God, Westbrook and Beverly on the same team. And then a few minutes later, he goes, by the way, the Lakers aren't wheeling and dealing. Um, <laughs> Wob is somebody who has, um, I think this is public, is communications with Jeannie Buss. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just, like, putting on my tinfoil hat too much. But I I would not be stunned if there's some type of trade involving Kyrie and Westbrook. Like- I'm gonna down text, before. I feel like I'm going to text Rob after this. Now now you've got me intrigued. You know, what does Rob know? What can he tell us? I would like to know. <laughs> I, I, I want to be aware. I, you said that we should be doing Rob. a victory lap I, on Kevin Durant. I, I, I was What? You said we should be doing a victory lap on Kevin Durant. And I wasn't yeah, we aware. should because we said, or at least I said, um, that the Nets is, was a similar situation to – the Packers with Rodgers two years ago, or maybe it was a year ago, my brain is broken, where he was signed for a number of years, said he wanted out, and it's like, sorry, we don't have to listen to you. Like, just because you say you want out doesn't mean we have to do it. You have several years on your deal. Your choice is to retire or play with us. Now, the Packers, what they did was they brought him into the fold, and they didn't necessarily, like, let him be the GM or anything, but they told him in advance when decisions would be made and kept him in the loop and made him feel very valued. And we saw the Nets put the boardroom logo on their tweet. Oh my God. KD was coming back. You know, it's very similar with like the way you massage these egos. And I'm sure they made some promise to him that will be revealed at a later date. It could be something like, hey, if we falter out of the gate, Nash will be gone or something. Like, you don't have to worry about that. We're gonna we're not going to like have a season like last year where we're clawing to get into the playoffs and just tolerating this. If he if you want him out at the all star break, he's gone or something. But um they made, I'm sure they made some deal with him, but I like they're not going to trade him. I put my money where my mouth was. I bet on the oh. Nets twenty seven to one to win the title when he demanded the trade. Um, 
Like, like, can you sell that bet? I feel like you should be able to sit, like do a little hedge, a little hedge. You you'd be able to sell it uh, if you if I had gone to the casino and bought a, a physical ticket, I'd be able to sell it. What the move is is not to sell the bet. The move is to uh, wait until they get to the second round of the playoffs and then start betting on their opponents. Yeah, like guarantee uh, a cash payment, and obviously, like it's a risk. Like Katie can tear. Achilles again or something, but the the move is to wait. At the- I I wrote about two thousand words on this whole Kevin Durant situation and have not published uh, have not published it. It's just it's not shaped exactly into whatever I want it to be. And the whole I mean the topic of that particular article is just that the entire trade saga of Kevin Durant was an elaborate fugazi enabled by the media uh, to a degree. Where... Right, because yeah, they, the media is the interesting business, and it's like fan fiction. Where yeah. I went through this with Rogers, where the team they're not going to get equal value to him. He had no leverage. Like he he's he's such a competitive person that he wants to play well. He's not he's like KD is not going to tank a season like an unhappy Kyrie might. You know, yeah, I, and. I, I, you know, name drop, whatever. I'm just being real about it. I know people in the league. I talked to multiple GMs. There was no expectation that they were going to trade this guy. Um, maybe something comes up and they're they're bowled over. But that in of itself is interesting. And it's also kind of funny that at the beginning of the saga, a certain uh, famous ESPN NBA reporter was really talking up the massive haul uh the unprecedented just huge haul Kevin Durant could fetch apparently not apparently not because nobody wants a guy who doesn't want to be there um and is getting the age range that he's getting into yeah, I mean that's the other upshot the four years on his deal it helped the Nets but it also hurt the Nets in terms of being able to find a counterparty because you don't know that Durant's will to play for an organization is going to hold up. You don't know that his body's going to hold up and you have to trade a bunch of players and draft picks, mortgage your future to get him. And whoever you trade is going to make it so you're no longer like a title contender with him. And so they're just like, I went through the scenarios in about 25 minutes and figured out that he wasn't going to get traded. I tweeted that he wasn't going to get traded. I bet money on the Nets at highly inflated odds. And the, for weeks, these TV shows were acting like, ooh, what if the Heat come in with a package? Oh, I, I got to I gotta write about this. I, I think I got to write about this because it was absurd. I mean, I, but the thing is, I don't know if the public is that angry because everybody needed something to think about and wants to give the trade machine a whirl. So I don't know if they feel utterly no, deceived. The public doesn't feel duped about it, but... Like just the these sports shows, all of them, like every single one of them on TV, they do not come at these conversations from the perspective of reality. No, no. And I also just think that there's chicanery involved. Ch- chicanery, I say, 
Well, uh, everyone's yeah. kind of involved in the same TV show. Like, you know, well, but I'm talking about be... more that the Nets have been getting their asses covered uh, by uh, ESPN in a way that, you know, Stephen A don't care. He's going to he's going to say what he says. But the CAA connection, I'm sorry, this thing where the GM is CAA and so many of your people, especially the main guy is CAA. Um, it, it is not getting reported out, I think, in a way that is objective and frankly truthful. Um, yeah, and- but the Fox shows do the same thing where they make up these like outlandish trades that aren't going to happen. Like, yeah. it, it's not yeah. just ESPN. And like all the podcasts do it too. Like it's everybody. No, no. Everybody is making up. Everybody's running with the idea of it could be this trade or it could be that trade. But I think the way this was reported was also in a way to try to play up the guy's value. That's what I'm saying. That's the part that's a little bit dishonest um, on the ESPN side versus these other programs who I think are largely just trying to milk it and come up with a fan fiction scenario, as you say. But, hey, I I would say it's over, but it is not over. I mean, it is hard to envision the Brooklyn Nets just continuing and being copacetic from here on out, although they could conceivably win the championship. I I, I legitimately don't want to watch one more TV segment talking about the Nets. Oh, but when they fail, it's fun. I mean, come on. Come on. When they failed in the playoffs... Yeah, that, that was, was a great when they got swept, it was fun. You're right. Um, yeah. that, that one was... day, it was yeah. fun for a day. <laughs> it, it, um, do we want to finish with um, Portnoy and Whitlock? Um, yeah, I think I, I do. I do want to address that. Although I have not read, I, it was shared in a group chat. I have not read the Whitlock going after Portnoy, so I actually don't oh, know. The second one was um, there were two. Both, but um, <laughs> there are multiple. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I am I, okay. I'm vaguely. Aware. I'll give. I'll give my generalized idea of. Uh, it's almost like drunk history of what's going on. Um, so Portnoy, uh, you know, loudmouth. Uh, everybody knows who Portnoy is. I don't need to do the expository on that. Barstool guy. He, I think, was aligning more and more uh, with with the right, and he was appearing on places like. Tucker Carlson, and um, he was really backing the small businesses during COVID. He interviewed and, Trump. and he interviewed Trump. I think he backed Trump in 2016. And so uh, there was no, this... that, that, that's that's a, um, that's kind of like a, a defector propagated falsehood. They oh, fake news. So um, for like a few weeks in 2015, it seemed like Trump's um, presidential election campaign was just like a big joke. You oh, know? so it didn't have the heaviness. Well, I don't want to get they, they They made MAGA hats before it got, um, before like the campaign reached like critical yeah. mass of both realness and ugliness. And the thing so, nobody, the thing people don't talk about these days is how everybody was enjoying Donald Trump and the Republican primaries, uh, you know, the only people who weren't enjoying it were professional Republican, Republican you know, like politicians. Jeb Bush supporters. Yeah, everybody <laughs> was enjoying that shit show. I mean, that was fun for everybody. But nobody thought he would actually, you know, become the president. No one, no one thought he was actually going to see it through. No one thought he'd become the nominee. No one thought he would yeah. win. 
It, it was like, you know, a, a couple of months in his reality show. Yeah. Trump bullying Jeb Bush at a 90% approval rating. Anyway, um, so yeah, Portnoy, though, it seemed like he increasingly was becoming a figure for the right. And I think the, the right is a little bit starved for celebrities and people of status uh, of any kind who really support them. And then there was this term that I think was popularized by Sagar and Jetty of barstool conservative. Uh, it's kind of like the new South Park conservative of sports bro who doesn't like wokeness and he's not inordinately political, but he just doesn't like what he's seen from the feminized liberal culture. And so he's going to pull the lever for Team Red. And I think that's when this started, where certain people on the right started to maybe not like Portnoy too much because I think in these spaces, people jealously guard their status and they don't like if somebody else is seen as representative of the thing they're a part of and they are not. And so I think that's when I started to see some some right wing pushback against this uh, decadent playboy who has no uh, you know family values or whatever the criticism of him may be. And then it really got a jolt. When Portnoy, after the Dobbs decision, God, I'm embarrassed about how much I know about this shit, Ryan. Is that just, I'm just, I, I, I'm, as I say this, as I say this, as I talk extemporaneously, I feel embarrassed for knowing about it. Um, but he, I think, did one of his little selfie videos about how the Dobbs decision was going to be bad for the Republicans, which I think has been borne out to be true. I think Portnoy. I mean, it's a different conversation. It was bad for the Republicans. He said it was bad for the country. He bad wasn't talking. Yeah, he, it wasn't he, just an assessment of the politics. He, he defended also, a woman's right to choose, and then he called the Constitution archaic. And he's like, "Why are we living okay. by the okay. document? What are we doing?" I don't think he used the word <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. I'm just picturing him with the, with the Portnoy voice. So I think at that point, that was a heel turn where the guy they liked. Uh, had stabbed them in the back on this particular issue. And I don't even know how it bubbled up again, actually, Ryan. I mean, this is just where I am in the story. I'll say one more thing. I will say one more thing. It's tied to this very strange issue, a niche issue, where there are certain people on the internet right who have kind of become anti-sportsists in the way you would have seen from liberals back in the day. And it's this, but it's flavored with this kind of idea that, you're sort of a cuck if you're watching, you know, people do sports and you're just, you know, watching Sunday football all day and your wife is cheating on you or whatever the Cernovich tweet that somebody sent me said about it. So there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, Ryan, in this whole thing. Uh, so here's where this bubbled up this week. Um, this guy, Alex Stein, who I guess he's I, – I didn't know about him before this week, but he um, – is a, a contributor for the blaze. He's a provocateur. He did some video about like having a bad weekend in Vegas. I don't, I don't know what I don't, I didn't see the video, so I don't know exactly what it was, but the barstool social posted it as like, you know, a funny viral video and Portnoy ripped the, like he yelled at the social team and told them to take it down because they're affiliated with a national gambling conglomerate and they don't want to be like associated. They don't want to be showing 
videos about like, you know, having a down gambling weekend or whatever. And <laughs> so he he told them to take it down. And then Alex Stein was like, what? Hey, bro, why'd you take my video down? And Portnoy's like, we've had 9,000 meetings about this. Like, we're a gambling company. We're not running content like this. Regulators hate it or something. Mm. Yeah. So that was when Whitlock jumped in and said that, like, Portnoy doesn't have any, like, any real values. His only... <laughs> Whitlock said his only um, values are an allegiance to money and barely legal women. Mm. Uh, um, so Portnoy responded by saying, um, I get attacked by the left. I get attacked by the right. Wait, like, does Portnoy even disagree with that? I mean, what value would Portnoy put out there? I, I mean, he, he did it. He, um, he didn't disagree with, with it inherently. What he said is that he's getting attacked by right wing trolls the left hates him too. He he hates the extremes on both sides, and um, you know he he mentioned how he raised all the money for the small businesses during COVID, um, and said like basically like I I'm I want to bring everybody together. And <laughs> um, I mean, sorry, I'm just laughing at that part of. Well, he he wrote it in, like, he wrote, like, a Team Portnoy statement that was, like, laced in, like, sarcasm and snark and inside jokes. And, I mean, you can probably, like, imagine it without reading. I'm just, I I guess I'm just trying to, okay, so, again, And then he called Whitlock fat. And, by the way, Whitlock isn't fat anymore. Like, he's lost a good amount of weight. Um, So, So many thoughts here, because... Whitlock and Portnoy are both... He's a little fat, but, like, he's not, like, that much fatter than, like, me. Like, I'm 5'9", I don't know, 2'10", 215. Like, he's not that much, um, like, I don't know. He, he, he isn't, like, very fat anymore. Well, okay, so, so many, so many thoughts on, on this whole thing. Because Whitlock and Portnoy are both incredibly confrontational people, um... Or, or people, I mean, if you're put in a more complimentary way, I, I don't think they, they're high disagreeability. And so I don't think they'd shy from the fight. I, I feel as though that we might be able to see them yell at each other on a podcast and argue. I, I mean, something like that could happen. So I, I, I would, I would, it would be great if it was this one. Oh, oh, could be. Or, I mean, maybe behind the old house of Strauss paywall. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> Um, so I, that could happen. Whitlock um, would do it. I don't know if Portnoy would. There's probably, um, like Whitlock would do this one. I, I like in disclosure, like I worked with Whitlock and I have a good relationship with him, I think. Um, and I, I, I think that in some ways that he's like misunderstood. Um, obviously like there are lots of people who don't like what he says and he um it's a thing where you become symbolic to people and then you can't even argue with it but but okay let's let's not get derailed on the whitlock thing um the portnoy thing is weird because the criticisms of him could be true but then why does conservative why, why do conservative figures why are they making them is there an idea that he's presenting himself as as uh some something to emulate or role model. I mean, that's, that's what I get caught up on because 
yeah, you can, you know, make these points about him and say that he is leading an empty life or not what you would want a young man to emulate. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he is actually presenting himself as be like me um, beyond gamble, gamble at my sports book. Right. So I guess maybe I'm just not well versed enough in what the, the Portnoy critique is. Um, but I, I, I almost feel yeah, like, I think like Whitlock's Whitlock's point was that he has like undeserved fame and fortune. But, um, Whitlock was saying that he um, like, there's, there's a vacuum of masculinity and, like the culture is so starved for it that they'll go to any figure who exhibits it. And if there wasn't such a vacuum of masculinity in the modern era in the country due to like the matriarchy, et cetera, that the public wouldn't gravitate towards Portnoy or care about him at all. Well, I guess we now know who our younger guy who could pull a Bissinger might be it's Dave Portnoy. Although I just looked him up and I think he's Generation X. He's he's forty five. Portnoy is. Um, it's a young forty five. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, didn't know that he was forty five. You know, you could have told me thirty five. Um, so, no way, not thirty five. But you could you could you could say forty forty two. Yeah. Um, um, but he kind of lives. You like could these. you could put him on the tail end of the elder millennials. You could. You could. Um. There's something to what Whitlock is saying, that there's this odd masculinity vacuum. And this gets back to why Barstool was starting to become popular on the right side of the aisle. I remember they they had shirts that said Saturdays are for the boys. And I remember Republican politicians knew to say that catchphrase. I saw some clip a few years ago where... Uh, I think it might have even been Ted, like dorky Ted Cruz, where uh, somebody yells, you know, who are, who are Saturdays for? He's like, for the boys. And it just became this thing that that made me realize, oh, a lot of young men might be shifting right because you can't do a Saturdays or for the boys shirt in progressive spaces. That's just something you can't do. So I think that there was there is something to that. Um, but I don't know about undeserved. I mean. People can hate Portnoy, but the guy clearly works like a demon and puts all of his energy uh, into uh, into Barstool and, you know, building up fame and, and everything else against all these attacks. So I don't know about Undeserved. Yeah. Um, and then Whitlock's other point was that the um, the protections that the Constitution grants. So, like, as I said, Portnoy had said that. Um, the constitution was like archaic and that was where Whitlock turned on him. It wasn't for the abortion stance per se, although he obviously disagrees with that, but he said like, yeah, of course Portnoy is going to like think that like wearing a condom is a step of responsibility too far. And he wants the freedom to get women pregnant and have them not have like a baby and have it be his responsibility. But um, the Constitution was where it, like, really rubbed Whitlock the wrong way because, like, if we didn't have, you know, the freedom of speech protection, then the, like, you know, the woke powers or whatever would have stamped out Barstool. And so I actually think that's kind of a reasonable point. It's a reasonable point, but I also just wonder how much do we really want to deeply assess 
the extemporaneous selfie video politics of one Dave Portnoy. I guess we do because we're kind of doing it on this uh, we, on this we, call. We in. spent fifteen minutes on it. It we is spent interesting. A quarter of our time. It um, is interesting. You know, I both, mean, like, yeah. I'll get Whitlock and Portnoy both understand interesting. Um, yeah, and so like you know that that's why there's there's something to the fact. Like, uh, and I'm going to toot my own horn with this mm. Reddit comment for a second, where... Um, <laughs> what a sentence. I, I, I'm leaning in. Okay. Um, someone um, said, like, I, I reported a thing on, like, Bill Simmons and CeCe Sabathia today. And go and read it at the post. I don't feel like getting all into it now. But um, it made its way to the Bill Simmons Reddit, and someone commented on it. Glassbeagle has me blocked on Twitter, but I listen to his call-in with Ethan Strauss every week, and I think he might have Asperger's. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then someone replied to it. That's why he's a perfect match with Strauss. So whoever, if you're listening to this still now, email me, rglassbeagle at nypost.com. <laughs> Tell me your Twitter handle. I'll look up why I blocked you. I'm not going to promise to block you, but I am interested in what you said to make me pull the trigger. Um, But there's something to be You probably said you had Asperger's. I mean, that's probably why you got blocked. (laughs) There's something to be said for um, being someone who is so hated, but you, you can't look away. Like... If if all of the haters of Whitlock and Portnoy ignored them, they would lose like half of their audience. And by the way, there's a caller who hopped on. Do we think maybe the caller is is this guy? You know, I don't know. That would be great. It, 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 it's I then is going to masquerade as him, whether it is him or not. Yeah, I, I, let's see, Vin. I've called up Vin to the stage. We're going to find out if Vin is the one who has been blocked. It's me, Jason Whitlock. Uh, no, I'm just playing. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not the I, guy. <laughs> <laughs> you're not. Whit- you're not Whitlock, and you're not the guy. Do you have a question for us? Yeah can i uh, Can I rant on something NBA media related? Is that cool for a second? Do Yo, it. you gotta go in about ten minutes, but go. Yes. No, no, it's quick. It's quick. It's about this. I've always been so annoyed about this rhetoric of player empowerment. And the thing that nobody brings up when it comes to the whole player empowerment thing, I'm wondering because Ethan, you come, you work with these people, or you have at least in the past closely. Mm. They 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 always talk about anytime a superstar gets uncomfortable or upset or has a mood swing and demands a trade, they talk about how it's great for you know the league and um, the players are taking the stand against the. I guess they're the working class against the bourgeois mm. owners or whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> they never mention the player who, because these are massive, you know, 30 plus million dollar contracts who have to be part of the trade, who maybe it's a guy who's having a, you know, really good situation. He's a minimum guy. He's getting minutes. He has great chemistry with his teammates. And he gets, he's part of the trade. And then he, is on a team now that doesn't fit his skill set and then he washes out of the league in a year or two. And it's like, that happens all the time, but nobody cares about that. It's just, Oh, 
it's great because Kevin Durant well, upset for some did you reason. See the, Vin, did, you, did you see the Pat Beverly tweet um, from a couple days ago? Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. I, yes, I did. Yeah, Ryan, right. I don't know if you saw that where Pat Beverly was saying that guys have been basically not getting jobs because the entire world has been held up for this Kevin Durant bullshit. Um, and I think KD went back at him, but that that was a little bit of an area of the frustration because when they say player empowerment, they really t- they're talking about maybe I don't know five players. Um, power, yeah, twenty maybe. Yeah, power is not evenly distributed. It just means that a few of the the star players get to call the shots, and it doesn't actually work out that great for the uh, lower classes uh, of the NBA. So. You know, I've seen I will people... say, though, that the yeah. lower classes of the NBA are overpaid because of the max contracts that the stars yeah. get. Um, so I, I understand what you're saying, Ben, where, like, because of the stupid, like, salary matching rules and whatever else that these players have to get, like, traded out of good situations when they might have been otherwise content and the teams might have been content with them. But... Um, if if there were a salary cap but no max contracts, the like bottom, I don't know. There's 200 players in the league would all be paid dramatically less. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. I guess my but, question to Ethan is real quick: yeah. is like the thing I want to know is from the M, from the media side of it, are they because they're so they're actually nauseatingly pro player at this point. And I'm yeah. not someone who I just watch. I'm a fan. I just I have my team. I watch the games, whatever. But it's just so nauseatingly pro player to the point where is it how much of it is they want access to these players? How much of it is this almost paternalistic white liberal thing? I don't know. I'm not white. <laughs> I'm not a liberal. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm just saying like it's these oh these these young black men kind of thing. <laughs> And it's like it's it's I just don't get it. I really don't because I don't know. Have you? When's the last time a white guy who's pretty good in the league demanded a trade? I well, I, I just we haven't seen it yet. So maybe that's the next litmus test. I, I mean, don't know. Kevin what? Love would they really care? Did he demand a trade? I'm trying to even remember. Yeah, he did. I mean, demand a trade I think and that nobody it's... cared. They made fun of him. That's right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I, so what you're bringing up, I think it's all the factors, but the most underrated factor that nobody admits to is the fear of the player themselves just going at you on social media. Um, I think that's that's a big reason for why um, there's an avoidance of sharp criticism. And, and nobody wants what I dealt with, to be frank. Nobody wants to be in a press conference getting yelled at by a superstar player and have it be on television. It's an uncomfortable thing. And so I think that has led to a softening of criticism of superstars. I, I, I wish it was just access because at least that would, there'd be a logic to that. Um, I think people convince themselves it's about access. I think it's just not wanting to get put on, on the summer jam screen. I think that's, that's what a lot well, of it is. the owners really have in pro sports made out like bandits for, you know 75 years now just there the these investments have appreciated at eye-popping multiples for a very long time and they've never really had their comeuppance other than like a short period 
in the NBA during the global financial crisis where like the league had to take over the, um, the Pelicans Hornets or whatever they were called then. Um, and the Sixers sold for like a very low amount, like the Sixers, like less than a decade ago sold for something like 200 million and they'd go for probably two and a half to 3 billion if they were sold today. But, um, the, the owners just have, um, as much as like any of them can cry foul about how this Durant stuff or Kyrie stuff is ridiculous in aggregate, the owners of just in all the sports have made yeah. just astounding amounts of money. Yeah. So they'll, they'll have to just suffer the humiliation and the harm to their ego in order to keep making the money. Um, but yeah, it's, I see more willingness to sort of, look at this and say this is not a great situation for the fans that the NBA is in. I think I think Simmons Simmons speaks to it to a degree. Um but yeah, you know, it's a good question, Vin. Um and uh, I don't know what's going on in the background. Sounds like you're skateboarding perhaps. Uh but uh we appreciate the question. I'm on an evening stroll here. I'll leave with this. Uh yes. Why is the NBA why is the NBA so focused on voting nowadays? I noticed they have uh, no games on the because, midterms. Uh, okay, I can answer that. So I look that. forward I to being told that to, <laughs> to just vote for your, you know, the current government and, so, and just without saying it directly. I, I yeah, we, we, talked about we, we talked about this last week. Listen to last week's show. <laughs> last week we'll answer the questions, but I think a lot of the answer is that they made certain concessions uh, towards uh, wanting to do things socially James Cadigan runs their social justice initiative and they got to do something. Right. And this is maybe the least controversial place to channel that energy. Um, I think that's, that's, the, that's the short version, the short version of what I'm saying, but it is funny. It's like vote, everybody vote. And there's like, well, for who, for what? And like, exactly. I mean, we all it's know. Like, don't, but... Yeah, we all know. Exactly. <laughs> well, I look forward to LeBron, uh, I look forward to my guy LeBron fake reading like Barack Obama's memoir uh, at a press conference or something. So another another good book that he'll fake read. I mean, he, he has excellent taste in these books. Uh, right, right. Thanks, guys. Goddamn, so. read them. All right. All right, thanks so much, Vin. Okay. Well, uh, I I really want an email from the Aspergers Reddit commenter. You know, I feel like the Aspergers thing. It, it almost feels like we're defining autism down and anybody is getting such a, such a label. I would interpret it as a compliment, Ryan. I think he means that you are uh, granularly focused, detail oriented. It's because I talk in a very strange cadence. (laughs) You got to stay away from that Reddit, man. You know, the Reddit, they'll they'll hurt your feelings. I've I've definitely had my feelings hurt uh, on a Reddit thread or two in my day. Um, Anyway, uh, you got something to plug on the way out of here. Uh, I interviewed Ric Flair this week. I had one piece about, um, I think it was pretty good. It was on like the weed business he's doing with Mike Tyson. Um, check out my Simmons Sabathia scoop. Um, if you can find it or not, if you can find it, but I think it's a good, you know, story behind the scenes in sports media. Um, I had to report it out. It took half a day or whatever. Um, that's about it. Bring uh, some stories, man. This is not bad. Um, I'll jump in with my plug. I think tomorrow I should have my podcast with uh, Bob Costas out. Uh, so, yeah, there, there you go. 
There you go, wow. people. Good, good cat by you. Yeah, good cat by you. All right. See you, Ryan. See everybody. Bye, Ethan. Next time. Later. Thank